Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the song known as the Negro National Anthem was written in Jacksonville. Anytime you're in a personal challenge in your life, it can encourage you to keep moving. We'll discuss entrepreneurs and the integration of territorial Florida into the national economy. They bought and developed land, established communities, produced commodities for markets, and served as regional bureaucrats. And we'll talk about the historically black American beach. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. That's the Jacksonville Children's Chorus with the Morehouse College Glee Club under the direction of Darren Daly performing the song Lift Every Voice and Sing. James Weldon Johnson wrote the lyrics to Lift Every Voice and Sing as a poem in 1900 to celebrate Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Five years later, his brother, John Rosamond Johnson, set the poem to music. The song, Lift Every Voice and Sing, became so popular that in 1919, the NAACP named it the Negro National Anthem. James Weldon Johnson was born in Jacksonville in 1871, and John Rosamond Johnson followed two years later. Adonica Toller is museum administrator at the Ritz Theater Museum and describes the Jacksonville that the Johnson brothers lived in. Well, it was a combination of good and bad. Um, there was racial tension. However, moving to Jacksonville was like the thing to do after the Civil War. In fact, the Johnson brothers' father moved here in 1869, right after the Civil War, and he was a free black man from Virginia, moved here, met their mother, and they settled right here. And two years later, John James Oil and Johnson came along. So it was a combination of a place to come back to start over, um, and then there was still some racial tensions. In uh, his autobiography, Along This Way, James talks about how, uh, in some cases, there were black and white um, mixes in public places at concerts and the like, but it was like a, a respectful tension there. But um, over a period of time, it, the tension rose. Jim Crow laws and blue laws started coming in more and more till he actually left officially right after the fire in 1901. 
James Weldon Johnson began spending time in New York City with his brother John, who was having success writing Broadway shows with Bob Cole. John Rosamond was already gone because he, was, he had gone off to Boston Conservatory. Um, John was a child prodigy, so he already knew music was his thing. Um, so he was already gone, and in the summer, John um, was in, when he was in New York, he was writing songs with Bob Cole, their partner, and then James would come in the summer and write with them. So in the summer, he would spend in New York doing all these wonderful things and come back and be principal at, at Stanton. The Johnson brothers both attended the Stanton School in Jacksonville, where James Weldon Johnson would later serve as principal. Adonica Toller. So Stanton School was one of the Freedmen Bureau schools built right after the Civil War. Um, it was built for all children, but white parents did not want their children going to school with black children. So that made it an all-black school, um, along with Union Academy in Gainesville. So they all started around about the same time, educating black children, which was really controversial because during slave times, it was against the law for someone black to know how to read and write. So it was a little controversial about the school being there, but they moved forward. and. Even better for them, their mother actually was one of the teachers at the school. So we had some teachers from the North that helped uh, educate um, uh, Mary Steele, the brother of William Steele, who was part of the Underground Railroad, was here. So we had some really um, the prominent people who were coming here to help educate um, those who didn't know how to read and write here in, in Jacksonville. James Weldon Johnson was a writer during the Harlem Renaissance in New York, served as an ambassador for Theodore Roosevelt, became a leader in the NAACP, and was a civil rights activist as well as an educator. While he was principal of Stanton, he became a lawyer, and he actually was the first black to officially pass the Florida Bar. So there were black lawyers who were practicing. Um, but most black lawyers at the time graduated from Howard University Law School. So since it's in the, in the United States Capitol, uh, it's a federal school, so a, law, a black lawyer could come and uh, practice wherever they settled. Um, but James was the first one to actually do the Florida um, bar, and uh, it was some controversy around it, but he passed anyway. So he was a lawyer and an educator, and he had a daily newspaper, so he was always doing something. Toller says that the success of the Johnson brothers began with their supportive parents, who were good role models, serving the community and fostering in their sons a love of the arts. So James was always interested in writing and writing about social justice. Um, once he decided to leave here, um, because he actually was almost hung because they thought he was sitting in the park with a white woman, um, that really sparred him on to go ahead and live in New York with John and, and be more focus more on his musical career and further going on to school at Columbia. Um, and there he became politically active. He became an ambassador to Venezuela and other countries, and that's where he met his, um, during that time, that is where he met his wife, Grace. Um, so he was moving all along, and then whenever he was in town, he was working with John and Bob, writing musicals for Broadway stage. And so he was always involved with social justice and enjoying the arts. John Rosamond Johnson demonstrated musical talent at a young age, 
That led to a successful career composing operettas, Broadway musicals, and vaudeville songs. He was actually selected to be part of the first black opera company in America. Um, and the other Jacksonville resident, I have to throw that in there, is Eartha White. She happened to be up there be going to school um, when she was younger. Uh, there was a, uh, during the summer, she would travel with her mother Clara on the ships, who was a steward on the ships. But when it was time for her to come back to school one year, there was a yellow fever epidemic, so she couldn't get back into Jacksonville. So she went back to New York and finished her education. And she and John were selected to be part of the Oriental America organization. And they traveled singing classical music all over the country. And John Rosamond ended up being the pianist taking over. They actually were trained by Harry T. Burley, um, the acclaimed um, songwriter and gospel singer. And so his career just continued to evolve as well, that he was popular around the world. When he actually put uh, the words to live Dairy Boys to sing to music, he was just coming back from one of his gigs in Europe. So he often was uh, the headliner in Paris, London, Germany. Um, he had a reputation, um, and he actually ran an opera house in London um, for uh, Oscar Hammerstein. The Ritz Theater Museum in Jacksonville displays documents, artifacts, and memorabilia associated with the song Lift Every Voice and Sing. For 20 years, automatronic robots have brought James Weldon Johnson and John Rosamond Johnson to life, voiced by Ossie Davis and Harry Burney. Lift every voice and sing. I composed those words in 1900, pacing our front porch while Rosalind worked on his musical setting. We wrote the song to celebrate Abraham Lincoln's birthday, to be sung by a chorus of 500 school children. We did not imagine then that the children of Jacksonville would keep singing the song, teaching it to others, until it was being sung in schools and churches throughout the South and elsewhere. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Jim, your words are magnificent. I only hope my music does them justice. Rosamond, your six years at the New England Conservatory have paid off admirably. As did your years at Atlanta University. Yes, in many ways. They opened my eyes to a much larger world, including some of its injustices. What the beauty of that song, the beauty and the sadness of the song, it really is a timeline of what enslaved Africans and free blacks experienced here in America. So it was of acknowledging the pain and the suffering, but the still moving forward and then the hope of things being better. And so just of what was happening in the civil rights movement, that song really rings true. It rings true that there is this problem we're having or we're in this awful situation, but it's got to be better. We're going to keep moving. We're going to keep going. There's got to be another opportunity for a better life. And so it is about admitting that you're in a tight spot, but let's keep moving. It can be better. We, got, we can't stop. But if we move forward, we can, uh, there, it can be a better opportunity if we make it, if we just keep going. 
And so it was still true to what was happening in the civil rights movement. I think it's still true now to what is happening here in America and other countries where people's human rights are being uh, violated. And it's a timeless piece. And I think that even though he wrote it as a poem, it was nice. It just did more, it meant more, it means more. And anytime you're in a personal challenge in your life, it can encourage you. Florida artist Augusta Savage created a 16-foot-tall sculpture for the 1939 World's Fair in New York that was inspired by the song Lift Every Voice and Sing. The sculpture depicted a human harp made up of an African-American chorus. The sculpture was done in plaster because Savage could not afford bronze. After the World's Fair, the large artwork was destroyed. Some smaller souvenir versions of the work survive, and one is on display at the Ritz Theater Museum. Adonica Toller. It's unfortunate that she did not enjoy financially her gifts, but her determination and her grit and her desire to share her knowledge. Um, she influenced Jacob Lawrence and Romir Bearden, so other artists who did have an opportunity to enjoy their acclaim before they uh, left this earth. So she was ahead of her time. And the Johnson brothers and Augusta Savage and Zora Neale Hurston all had lived here at one point and they were all in New York at the same time. And so when she was uh, given the opportunity to do a piece for the New York World's Fair, and I believe she was one of the first, if not the first black artist to have that opportunity, she chose to create a piece called Lift Every Voice and Sing. We affectionately call it the harp, but the song is definitely the inspiration behind the harp. The song Lift Every Voice and Sing became even more popular during the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s and continues to inspire people around the world. There were two ladies from the Netherlands, barely could speak English. I showed them this exhibit. I, in fact, I mentioned I'm going to show you Lift Every Voice and Sing, and they sung it to me in Dutch. And they sung it like they were, they were like this, and they just was so happy, and they sung the whole thing. So it's amazing how people are touched by this song, and I share with students, I said, you, I said, this is a song, just think how 120 years later now, people are still touched by this song. What are you going to do that is gonna to touch people almost 120 years later after you're gone. What song, poem, book are you gonna write? Um, what are you gonna do that people are gonna remember you and just get inspired by what you did? Darren Daly conducts the Jacksonville Children's Chorus and the Morehouse College Glee Club in this performance of Lift Every Voice and Sing by James Weldon Johnson and John Rosamond Johnson. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. 
Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find great books about Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, we've had several discussions about Florida in its long territorial period, but one group we haven't explored as much are the entrepreneurs who settled in the borderlands. Matthew Seons, an independent scholar from Gainesville, wrote an article for the fall 2018 issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly in which he analyzed those men of the West, territorial entrepreneurs, clever men like James Orman III, Charles Seton, and James O'Neill, who, quote, facilitated the incorporation of Florida into American economic circles, end quote, and thereby into the national political experience. The history of the transition from territorial status to statehood most often focuses on political figures and their access to national leaders. By shifting attention to the entrepreneurs, Seance demonstrates the complexity of both the borderlands and the expansion of a nation composed of multiple interests. His men of the West were composed of a handful of East Florida businessmen who were so labeled by British investors who were looking West and recognized their entrepreneurial understanding of the dynamics of the commerce-driven expansionism that would characterize the period 1812 to 1845. During the territorial period, Florida was transformed from a Spanish colony at the crossroads of competing imperialisms into a peripheral territory of the United States and ultimately into the 27th state. And as predicted, the men of the West played a central role in that transformation. Connie, this sounds as if Florida experienced the creation of a robust urban economy, but wasn't the central question of the period and for most of the 19th century one of parceling out land? It was, but as land was distributed, Seons tells us, the subsequent questions focused on what to do with the land, how to extract wealth from it, and where to obtain the capital to accomplish this development. He argues that entrepreneurs were essential in the process of expansion. They bought and developed land, established communities, produced commodities for markets, established mercantile and shipping businesses, and served as regional bureaucrats. As American manufacturing expanded in this period, territorial entrepreneurs became the distributors of industrial commodities and linked local production to U.S. markets. It is somewhat ironic that many of the Florida entrepreneurs were descended from Loyalist English or Scots families who fled to the peninsula from New England after the American Revolution. Others were descendants of British or Spanish families whose histories had long been intertwined with Florida. Some of these entrepreneurs began to disentangle but not abandon their interests from long-standing ties with the Caribbean in favor of U.S. markets. How did the entrepreneurial efforts in East Florida fit into the larger American expansionism of the mid-19th century? 
Much of the historiographic attention remains on the advent of Middle Florida and its ties to the plantation south. Sejons explains that East Florida developed in relative isolation from the land grab settlements of Middle Florida. He carefully characterized East Florida as a borderland, a fluid and contested space that experienced violent conflicts that included the Patriot War and two Seminole Wars. Indeed, East Florida remained sparsely populated until the Second Seminole War ended in 1842. Settlers, attracted by federal incentives, began pushing into the area. The entrepreneurs also expanded their land holdings and commodity output while strengthening their ties to firms and banks in Savannah, Charleston, and New York. They enlarged their commercial efforts to include Tallahassee and facilitated the creation of a more unified Florida, no longer distinguished as East and Middle. Seons ties the experiences of the East Florida men of the West to the larger American expansionism of the 1840s and 50s, where similar men provided the foundations of growth. I will read his conclusion to capture his view of their contribution accurately. Quote, Sustained by both growing industrial capacity and slavery, and represented by energetic American mercantile firms and commission traders, this market economy extended across the continent during the first half of the 19th century. A prominent cohort of entrepreneurs in East Florida, seeing greater convenience and profitability in more accessible U.S. markets, reconfigured their colonial commercial networks to channel their business toward American ports along the Atlantic seaboard. These men of the West stitched together their communities into the patchwork of the U.S. market economy, an effort aided by the beneficial policies accorded by territorial status. Although desire for territory, manifest destiny, or geopolitics may have shaped and molded the period's expansion, commerce provided the sturdy foundation, end quote. Fascinating as always. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. The book Saving American Beach was presented with the James J. Horgan Book Award at the Florida Historical Society Public History Forum and the Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Society Conference in Gainesville. Holly Baker spoke with author Heidi King. As a girl, Mavine Betch loved the beach. She loved the whoosh of its waves, its blue sky stretching to forever, and the creature swimming in its tangy sea. But Mavine couldn't go to just any beach. Because of her skin, silken and butter brown, she couldn't eat in most restaurants or visit most bathrooms. There was even a rope in the ocean. One side said colored, the other white. Something must be done, her great-grandfather said. And so Mr. Abraham Lincoln Lewis bought a beach. It was an ocean paradise where his family and other Black people could swim, picnic, and build sandcastles. He believed that a beach should be open to everyone. That was author Heidi Tylene King reading from her award-winning picture book, Saving American Beach. 
The Biography of African-American Environmentalist Maveen Bitch Illustrated by Caldecott honoree Equa Holmes, Saving American Beach tells the story of Maveen Bitch, an African-American opera singer turned environmentalist who became known as the Beach Lady. So Maveen Bitch, I think a lot of people, if you do know her, you know her as the Beach Lady. But she grew up in a very wealthy African-American family in Jacksonville. And her great-grandfather actually at one time was one of the richest, wealthiest African-Americans. So they couldn't go to the beach, which is crazy. So he decided to do something about that. And so he actually bought a beach. The beach was named American Beach, and it was a place where he wanted African-Americans to be able to go for relaxation without discrimination. So all of the celebrities of the day went to American Beach. But there are people who remember the Betch family arriving in limousines for their summer vacation as well. And that was Maveen's family. She went to Overland College, became a well-respected, world-renowned opera singer. And when her mother was very sick, she returned to Florida to care for her. And then when her mother died, she stayed. After returning to Florida, Maveen Betch dedicated her life to protecting the environment. She spent the rest of her days educating people about Black history and the environmental importance of American Beach, a place she considered sacred. She was a staunch environmentalist, and she well may have been one of the very first African-American women environmentalists. And she was quite wealthy. And she supported all kinds of causes. She supported whale research. There's a whale named after her. She supported butterfly research. A very important book for butterflies is dedicated to her. Soon, however, she had given all of her money away to these important causes. And I think that she then moved to the beach. She slept in a chaise lounge, as the book says, and bathed in the ocean. Her sister did give her a camper. And she did live in that at some time. And there were other times when she lived in houses, I think, that still belonged to her family. So she was very much one and the same with the beach. She stayed there and she, she really advocated for the beach and she would give tours and she would really talk to anybody who would listen about why that beach was so special. And she just continued doing that, um, even when people weren't listening, when it wasn't a big deal to be environmentally friendly or to preserve places for all people. So I think that she really just kept going when so many people would have given up. In 2002, American Beach was added to the National Register of Historic Places. Ma Veen Betch, lovingly called the Beach Lady, passed away in 2005 at the age of 70. Her ashes were scattered in the ocean off of American Beach and on the high dunes she successfully fought to protect. She was posthumously honored as an unsung hero of compassion by the Dalai Lama. She's remembered today for her contributions to the environmental movement and for fighting for diversity and inclusion in public spaces. In 2014, American Beach Museum opened its doors, bringing one of Ma Veen's dreams to life, Heidi Tylene King. Florida has a lot of development on its beaches. There aren't very many left like American Beach that are as pristine. And I think the beach lady recognized that and really did march in Tallahassee. And she used her body and art as a way to protest what was going on. 
So I just, I thought she was a great role model. I was writing this for my girls. As much as I was drawn to her, that's really what I, I was looking at. As somebody who's not afraid to be different, who's not afraid to stand up for what they believe in, and who succeeds. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us anytime at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.